and welcome to the Friday edition of Anglican Unscripted, episode 537. I'm Kevin Coulson. I'm George Conger. I'm Gavin Ashenden. It's the 20th of September, 2019. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, clergy and laity alike, old, young, and those who don't consider themselves old or young. Welcome to a program. I need you guys to help us out, and you do that by participating in the show after the show. And we do that by going to Facebook and clicking that little like button, going to YouTube, click the like button. We're getting lots of likes, 200, 300, 400. We really appreciate that because it helps Google serve this up um, or YouTube serve this up in a search result because they oh, it's popular. Hey, people like it. We would be happy to share it. They don't know the content. They have no idea we talk about religious things, but we're not going to tell them that. We're just going to talk and have you guys support us. Also, share us. Click that little link and send it to your friends, your clergy, your bishops, your laity, and let them know what's going on in the Anglican Communion because that's what Anglican Unscripted is here to do. Also, when this show is over, it's not really over. We continue the show in the comments. Brush over to, and, and put your ideas, thoughts, comments, some corrections if you have to, in the comments. And we love to read those and respond when we get a chance. Okay, so we got three big news items this week. I had filmed an interview with Dr. Reverend Dr. Stephen No and one with Alan Haley. And Alan Haley and I talked about the Texas case and the South Carolina case and Bishop Love's Catch-22 problem. I click the publish button, it goes up to the internet where YouTube is. YouTube sends out thousands of notifications across the uh, world saying, hey, Kevin's got a new angle and it's scripted, come watch it. And boom, breaking story from the Diocese of South Carolina. Um, a federal judge has decided to overturn a earlier ruling where a uh, court had given the seal and the name to uh, Mark uh, Lawrence's diocese. And I thought, oh, well, we have to talk about tomorrow on the news, which is today. George, give us a quick update what happened, and then we can talk about the, the significance. Uh, the district court in South Carolina did hand down this ruling, finding in favor of the National Church and the Episcopal Church in South Carolina against the Episcopal Diocese of South Carolina over the use of the trademark in the name Episcopal, holding that it rightly belonged to the national the national group and its entities, not to the breakaway group, if, if you wish to call it that. Mm -hmm. uh, I read through the opinion, it's about 80-odd pages. It's not particularly interesting or persuasive. And I'm going to go into commentary. Uh, you, basically, you're asking a secular judge to, uh, to interpret theology and church history and doctrine and discipline through mm -hmm. the lens of trademark law. In other words, can I, which is usually... Uh, for who gets to use Mickey Mouse in their advertising, except for Walt Disney. So it's, it's, it's not a really good venue, but the National Church brought this case as part of a larger legal assault against the Episcopal Diocese of South Carolina. And the National Church has uh, had some major blows in recent weeks, and now they've got a what I would call second-level victory. Uh, yes, it's a loss, but uh, I don't... Well... I'll offer an opinion. I, th I think there's some things you just need at a certain point to say, it's not worth the money anymore. 
to litigate <laughs> some of these second level issues. Well, I, I, I mean, that's important. You know, we, we fight for our identity and stuff like that. But one day the, the Queen of England could wake up and said, only we get to identify what is Anglican. Anglican means of England. So all of you people outside, you know, uh, of England, you can't use that term anymore. And, and that would be great because my identity is in Christ. That's right. Not in Anglicanism. <laughs> well, I, I happen to belong to a particular trade union that is Anglican, but I'm still at belong to Christ. I, I, I think it's context is everything. Later on in the program, I may be arguing this from the other side. Uh, depending on how the conversation goes. But I don't think I agree with you, George. I remember, I mean, when Mark Lawrence made his bid, he, he wanted the world to know that um, those people who, who seceded with him were the authentic Anglicans. And the seal, yeah. the seal, of course, the seal doesn't matter at all in itself, but it was a sign, a sort of semiotic reassurance that Mark Lawrence's, uh, Mark Lawrence's community were the authentic Christians. They never uh, left. But they never left, and and I yeah. and I think I can well understand, given the the public fight to try and communicate, um, you know, who is real church. That in that sense, the seal and the symbol of the diocese might be really quite va emotionally valuable. Um, so as a seal, you're quite right; it's secondary thing. But in terms of the way it reflects what authentic Christianity is, kind of if you like the you know the 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 right to the apostolic identity, I can understand them wanting to invest some time and energy and money and saying, actually, that's us. And as we know, until you get to Supreme Court, there's really no final decision if you ever get there. Uh, we watched the California churches go through all the courts. We watched the Illinois. We've, we're watching Texas, and we're going to continue to watch South Carolina because it never seems to end. And at a, a certain level, even as journalists, you know, it gets tiresome. It's hard to watch uh, because there's... You know, there's this is the, the week that uh, the Episcopal Church won. Five months from now, South Carolina will win, and then there'll it, be a small it, victory again for the Episcopal Church. And it just, it just, but, it's like watching a slow tennis game. Uh, well, I think I think some of the distinction between Gavin's point and my point, essentially, we're re-arguing the case of uh, Putt Putt Golf in Norwich Cathedral. Uh, I said, you know, I think it's a vulgar and stupid idea, but I don't think the world is going to end. Gavin was rather more exercised about the symbolism mm -hmm. and the holiness. And my argument came down to, well, you know, the Christ is found within the, in our hearts, not in any particular stones. I'm, I'm making a, a, a very bad hash of your point, Gavin, but I'm yeah. essentially coming at the whole South Carolina seal and name issue from the same degree. Yeah, the name and the seal are important for emotional reasons. I understand that for historical reasons. I understand that for symbolic reasons. I understand that, but I think don't really think it has much to do with the actual work of Christ. Well, which see, I, I believe I, is. I think in this case, George, you're you're exhibiting Gnostic tendencies, and I, and I'm exhibiting sacramental incarnational tendencies. That's how I would argue it. <laughs> we can let people. Division on unscripted. If in 30 seconds, Gavin, you can tell me what Gnosticism means to you. Then. Yeah, right. Well, you've, you've, in, in 60 seconds, George, you've just told us what Gnosticism means to you. <laughs> no, but it's essentially, uh, my, my experience within the church is that uh, you're not known by the, your seal or your name. You're known by the fruits of the Spirit that come from you and from your work, and from your witness, and from your life. 
And it doesn't particularly matter what you're called or who does it. Of it's course, how God true. is working in the world. And therefore, uh, I'm not, I'm, I'm have nothing emotionally invested in this. Uh, I have friends on both sides of the issue, rather more in the Episcopal Diocese of South Carolina. And I just think it's a shame that so much energy and heat is wasted when the resources could be used for greater things. And here well, we are doing I, the same thing, wasting resources on talking well, about something hold not on, very But here, here's where I come from. You know, when Bishop Lawrence became bishop, got the seal, and uh, became a steward of the diocese, I think he has an obligation to protect the, the name, I, just as Kevin's opinion, the name and the seal uh, for stewardship purposes, uh, to I be think a good that, steward. I, see, that's the argument Catherine Jeffrey Shorey made that a bishop's primary responsibility is fiduciary duty to somebody, whether it's mm -hmm. the national church or the diocese. I believe, you know, from a biblical perspective, if, if somebody asks you for your coat, give them two. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, this is not the biblical way forward. This is not how Jesus is telling us to work. Rather, this is what's mine is mine and you can't have it. Now, that's very harsh, and I don't mean to portray the thinking in this way. But if, if I were involved in this in an insider's level, my counsel would say, let him have it and let us go on and do the work that Christ has called us to do. And, and by Gnostic, I think what I meant is that what you're talking about is a, the primacy of spiritual experience. And you're not wrong. You can't possibly be wrong. What I'm trying to do is explain that the layers that one can add on to that can be holy. Uh, they're not necessarily holy. In this particular case, um, I, I'll never forget seeing a video of Mark Lawrence stand up preaching to his diocese saying, guys, this is the moment we're going, uh, with hearts breaking and, and profound emotional uh, distress. And I, I think what the seal does is it's, it's emblematic of that conviction, that distress, that courage. So by itself, you're quite right, George, it's just a seal. But I think in terms of historical and, and, and pragmatic terms, it becomes... It gets it becomes symbolically as a sign, semiotically invested with something more. But in the end, this may be a matter of personality. Some of us, some of us, see signs and symbols as being uh, as, as as being uh, con conveying loud content, a deep message, and for other people, um, they're less important. Maybe it's a matter of theological taste, and it's probably also a matter of experience. I mean, in my twenty-five years in the ministry. I've only known a corrupt and broken and fallen Episcopal Church. I've only known bishops who are crooked, or <laughs> clergy who are perverts, who are liars. Uh, no, I, I, I'm no, being I, melodramatic, I, but, but the point is that this sense that this symbolism that points to individuals in a history is somehow going to bring us closer to Christ, I hear what's being said, but my experience is that it is through scripture and through spiritual experience that I know Christ and through the sacraments. It's not through the outward signs and symbols. Now, if, now if we want to refight the Gorham case, when does baptism take place? Uh, does it take place at the moment of baptism, before, uh, sometimes afterwards, never? When does generation take place? You know, this is, this is a 200-year-old argument. Um, but I'm we, not willing, but so that, uh, this is not something I want to die in a ditch over. Yeah. But we can all agree that the Episcopal brand of the Episcopal Church is broken, ruined. I mean, uh, there's not a whole lot you can defend there. And he, he did it again. He just walks off camera. <laughs> just, <laughs> I'm going to fight the Gorham case. I'm going <laughs> to. 
<laughs> oh, hold on. You Before you do that. On the off, yeah, okay. <laughs> George. It, it, oh, we're not going to do that. Okay, I thought we were going to do that. Uh, let's move on to other news. Let me pull off the, uh, uh, the well, I, there is There is one thing, because uh, one of my experiences with doing this show is that people hear what they want to hear, then they get themselves worked up and angry, and then they don't listen anymore. Yeah. I am not supporting the national church and its victory. I'm not saying this is a good thing. Gosh, no. Rather, mm -hmm. I'm offering my opinion as to what I believe is the, the better course in response to this bad news. Mm -hmm. And it, I want to say I'm with George. I would not die in a ditch for a seal. But I can understand why the people in South Carolina might invest some love and some, uh, some value in the way they're presented in society. And full disclosure, when my church in 2008 left the Episcopal Church, we didn't ask for anything. We just gave the bishop the keys and walked away. And uh, for us, that was the right thing at the right time, the right moment, and it launched many wonderful ministries. Let us move on. Gentlemen, there is a new bishop in Wales. Uh, <laughs> what's the news there, George? Archdeacon of Rochdale, Cherry Van, in the Diocese of Manchester, was elected by an electoral synod this past uh, Thursday or Wednesday to be the new Bishop of Monmouth, which at one time had been Road Williams, Old Sea. And this is quite an interesting story. Um, she has never served in the, in the Church in Wales. She's always been on the Church of England, and on, she has a rather nice CV. She's a, an archdeacon in the diocese. She's the prolocutor of the Northern Convocation and General Synod. Gavin, what does that mean? What does that fancy title uh, it, mean? It, it, you're the trade union leader for, uh, for, for, the, for the Northern... You're the clergy trade union leader in synodical parliamentary terms. And she's a member of the Archbishop's Council of the Church of England. Now, um, members of the Archbishop's Council and members of her diocese have gone on the record publicly to state that she's a partnered, uh, she's in a, a uh, partnered same-sex relationship. She wears a wedding ring and so on and so forth. She is, in essence, the first partnered lesbian, gay bishop, lesbian, I'm repeating myself, the first partnered lesbian bishop that we know of in the UK. Hmm. And this is uh, quite a step well, forward for the church in Wales. Is she going to say, like many other ones who are partnered but not living or they're celibate? Is that what we're going to hear? Well, I wrote to the church in Wales press office uh, yesterday after the news was announced, and I said, is this, uh, here's what I've been told, what can you tell me? And, you know, we have a partnered gay bishop in the Church of England, the Bishop of Grantham. Mm -hmm. However, the Church of England went through some rather tortuous uh, explanations saying, well, he pledges, he has pledged to be celibate, and though he's in a civil partnership with another man, and he identifies as gay, he's not, he's like me, he's just too tired, and therefore doesn't do anything. The Church in Wales response is, well, we're not going to address any of these issues. We're neither going to confirm nor deny. It's not and important. So, in Doesn't essence, matter. This, uh, the, the, the option taken by the Church in Wales is effectively to say the gay issue does not matter to us. We're not going to go through the perambulations that the Church of England is going through. We're just saying this is who she is, like it or lump it. Hmm. Gavin, if I were living with a female and I was a clergy 
um, and I was not married to this female, would I be allowed to be bishop? Now, is this your mother? Or when you <laughs> yeah, say living? Even, well, even then, well, that, well, well, at this point, come on, this is, this is Church of England. I'm sure it's like, this look the other way. <laughs> of course, one of the reasons I don't want to answer this question is because hmm. um, we have difficulties with appearances. Um, and, and whether one, if one goes behind appearances, is one entitled to peer behind the bedroom curtains of, of people who live together? John Henry Newman w lived in a deeply affectionate relationship with an, with another man. There is no sense, and although they're claimed by the, some of the gay community, there's no sense at all they were anything but but entirely celibate brothers who loved Christ and lived supportively together. We, you know. We uh, the difficulty I have with this particular thing is that I don't want to ask questions about how uh, two women offer each other emotional and more than emotional support domestically. My problem is with the breach of Galatians 3.28. Christians have no right to call themselves gay, lesbian, gay, bisexual. Um, and it, it matters in so many ways. It matters, first of all, because... Um, it's, it's a complete misunderstanding of our identity in Christ and how we are supposed to be growing into Christ, growing in holiness, being transformed in, 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 in all our appetites. And within a marriage, a heterosexual marriage with children at the heart of it, one can construct a narrative of sexuality and how we use sexuality uh, and, and how we both embrace it and leave it behind to some extent. But if you have a partnership that's based entirely on the label of erotic and romantic attraction, uh, particularly between same-sex partners, with everything the Bible says about that, how do you narrate a theological and spiritual journey deeper into Christ? At what point, for example, do you leave that behind, if at all? You can't leave it behind if it's if it's how you identify. And, and worse than that, the we already know that the whole gay lobby is a spearhead for a very problematic cultural package, behind which, as we've said before, lies. And then there's there's the whole list of trans rights and pedophilia uh, and um, the the completely warped anthropology that has nothing to do with the Judeo-Christian tradition. My real difficulty is with any Christian, let alone a priest, let alone a bishop who says, I identify with this cultural, progressive, sexualized movement. My identity is in my genitals, not in Jesus. There's something very wrong with that. So I don't want to ask ask any questions about about how they live in 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 their Episcopal uh, mansion. I I want to say go back to Galatians thirty eight and revisit who your identity is in. Well, I think the important point is when you pick a bishop, they're supposed to be above and beyond reproach, so that you don't have to worry about the bedroom, that you don't have to worry about what they do in their uh, bishop's palace. Um, that just there's a overwhelming assumption that this person is holy, and I, or obviously centuries beyond that, and uh, I've not seen any Church of England bishop in the last eight years that I would say is above reproach. Well, it's interesting that we're coming back to, to the idea of holiness. Mm. I mean, ho holiness seems to be the criterion which divides the issues we've been talked about. Whether it's holiness in the cathedral, this is not bleep, bleep, bleep Disneyland. <laughs> it should be a holy place. Uh, even the drunks understand that holiness is a central issue. But I think you're right, Kevin. This, is, this, this invites the Christian community 
to ask itself again what holiness is mm -hmm. and how our sexuality and identity uh, are informed by, uh, by, by biblical and traditional holiness. I, Gavin, I think you are exercising your nostalgia here and you've made some category errors. Merit and holiness have nothing to do with the election of bishop in the Church in Wales. This is a political process. There are 23 clergy electors in the Electoral Synod. All but seven are bishops, archdeacons, and deans. And you need to have a two-thirds vote. So what this means is that the establishment, by the way they pack the Electoral College, is able to select those people whom they wish to put forward as bishops. If I were Jeffrey John, uh, the dean of uh, St. Albans, St. Albans, who made headlines, gosh, going back to 15, 20 years ago, when he, uh, a gay man, was uh, all put forward as a suffragan bishop in Oxford, uh, assistant bishop in Oxford. Uh, he stood for election in Wales about a year and a half, two years ago, and Barry Morgan, the former archbishop, has been pushing for this outcome. He pushed for women clergy, he pushed for women bishops, he's been pushing for the normalization of homosexuality. Jeffrey John, however, even though he maintains he's celibate in his relationships, uh, it's just too intellectually vigorous, too outspoken. He'll be on the BBC a little too often. So they made the perfect choice. Me members of the Archbishop's Council tell me that uh, Archdeacon Van is, is a complete non-entity. She is a committee person. She sits on the dais at the uh, general, at general Synod and in 10 years has basically made no meaningful contribution whatsoever. Within the diocese where she's archdeacon, she's made life miserable for conservative evangelicals, I'm told, but, but through a sort of a passive-aggressive uh, approach to things. In other words, she is not a, a warrior for this cause. She's just an apparatchnik. And so now we have another mediocrity uh, who has a good CV of positions but no actual real holiness or merit or intellect or heft. So if I were Jeffrey John, who no matter what you may say about him, his theology, no one would say that he doesn't have intellect or heft. I'd well, I would act. I'm a bit uncomfortable about calling somebody a non-entity, but, but what I think you mean is uh, that she's underwhelming uh, in her impact on on the church but in terms of accusing me of nostalgia george you have no idea how nostalgic i am i go back to 1054 you see before before the great schism we would have been informed by 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 the eastern part of the church which said when it comes to choosing bishops we'll only have monks only monks can qualify for being a bishop in orthodoxy because mm. one of the things that people say is we want people who have led led lives of prayer and on whose holiness we can count as our bishops and we love our parish clergy and they're allowed to be married and, uh, and you know they're very good at their parish work but being married they won't have had as much time to pray as a monk will let's have a monk for our bishop i think the fact that the church in the west has lost any sense at all of that criteria is hugely to our to our to our disadvantage now gavin i'm going to hit you with the cheap shot peter ball oh oh that is well <laughs> Yes, of course. Uh, well, I would. Okay, in this tennis match, George. <laughs> I, I would, I, no, hold on. There's people here who don't know who Peter Ball was. Somebody better. I'd, I'd rather I'd rather lose the argument than be seen. <laughs> oh, thank you, Okay. 
I think non-entity, I did not mean that as a person she's not entity, but her role in the substantive substantive debates within the Archbishop's Council. In other words, she's not someone who has ideas or is a mover or a shaker, who who people, when we come to an issue, they look at her and think, what does she have to say? But She's she's just another gray face at a long gray table. She's a partnered bishop lesbian who is not an activist in any way, shape, or form. And that's exactly what they're looking for. If we're, you know, they, they're tired of having the activist uh, gay people uh, wearing purple. It's just not working. And, and I've got my answer to George. <laughs> um, so there was nothing wrong with the idea that lay behind Peter Ball, the idea of having a, a charismatic monastic person who had said their prayers and was attractive through their spirituality that was a good idea it was just a shame he was corrupt at the same time but the monasticism wasn't corrupt the man was so i i still i still lay claim to the idea as a good one if we could only make it work that applies to so much of the church doesn't it (laughs) guys i'm going to move on to the next story i hope you follow me uh (laughs) house of bishops meeting going on here in uh the north america the episcopal church's meeting at the house of bishops and the news this week is Bishop Love. They're continuing the Title IV uh, review. They're going to have him before a hearing. They're going to send him down and say, listen, we don't care if this isn't part of the prayer book. We don't care if it's not part of the official doctrine. Um, we made an amendment in the general uh, meeting we have, and you need to follow it. I, I would say yes and no. Okay know the news, meaning what is printed by the Episcopal News Service, hasn't been talking about Bishop Love. The public debates and the emotional reporting from the Episcopal News Service about the House of Bishops meeting in Minneapolis is how mean Justin Welby is to not allow us to bring our gay spouses and what are we going to do about it. So we have uh, some histrionic uh, statements and I'm not bringing my wife if you can't bring your partner, this and that. Yes, behind the scenes and the real emotional issue, say for those who are involved in the spouse issue, is uh, are we going to hit the brick wall with uh, Bill Love? Mm. Well, I, my question is, are they, are they going to, is he, Bill Love going to be a martyr by this time next year? I don't think so. And here I'm engaging in pure speculation. I have no inside knowledge. Just an opposite, just a knowledge of the players and how the processes work. Does the we average, really are about two weeks into the process itself, even yeah. though this happened over a year ago, and for one re- for reasons that are not clear, Michael Curry has slow walked this to such an extent that uh, it could not get any slower. I think that uh, we want. I think the desired outcome is a Walter Ryder outcome that at the end of the day, after all this issue is settled at the next general convention, we'll have a decision saying Bishop Love was mean, but he didn't violate core doctrine. Now, here's the, here's the kicker. There are still some progressive firebrands who want to make martyrs of all those who oppose their will. But the composition of the House of Bishops has changed over the last 10, 15 years and the new liberals who support same-sex marriage and uh, all this and that, they just don't want to fight the fights of the last 20 years. The church is, uh, uh, Marion Edgar Buddy, 
Bishop of Washington. She's a liberal. She's out there. She believes all the right things for the progressive movement. She will say at the House of Bishops meeting, my God, my diocese is in financial and attendance freefall. What are we going to do to fix it? And then, and then, okay, well, let's talk it. Let's and but then the agenda is seized by uh, the other liberal faction to say, well, let's uh, decide how where to put the commas in the gay marriage liturgy. And Bishop Buddy is saying, it, this is a total waste of time because you know if we don't have a diocese, how can we have? How, why should we worry about these liturgies? So they're they're wheels within wheels within wheels. Now, I'm not addressing the morality or the rightness of the prosecution. I'm just saying how I see it unfolding. I think, well, well here, here in America, for the last 20 years, we've had thought crime. Uh, Bishop Love is, you know, cer certainly guilty of a liberal thought crime. And I've seen that more and more in the Church of Ling England as well, Gavin. Thought crime. Well, Kevin, thank you. That, that's, that's exactly the, the link I hoped we'd be able to make because... I, I was very impressed by your interview with, with Dr. Knoll uh, yesterday or the day before. Uh, and I thought the point he was making about Article 13 in the Jerusalem Declaration was really very important indeed. He said that, and the Article 13, to remind people if they haven't heard it, is the bit that says that, that we renounce not only false teaching, but false teachers. And the reason this matters is because it's a, it, it, it's a way of keeping apostolic succession. A biblical apostolic succession, the, the kind of values that George was espousing earlier on in the conversation. Um, and one of the things that, that Dr. Knoll said was that he was astonished at the way in which some of the English clergy he'd been talking to didn't get how serious the situation was or how serious it could become. And he quite rightly was saying, look what's happened in America, it's happening in England, and it's happening fast. One of the, the things that I was saying in 2012, not to pat myself on the back, but I was taking the Noel approach and saying, guys, you don't know how seriously the opposition, the liberal progressive establishment, wants you silenced and out of the church and how, how quickly and ruthlessly they're going to move to cut down on your space. And in the years that's happened. So I want to defend Stephen Noel and say it's very important indeed that Article 13 should remain in there and one of the one of the the tasks oh george <laughs> that's worse than the earthquake <laughs> that was worse than me to fix my technical issue um and and uh, at the moment in england we we have this debate going on between mainly conservative evangelicals who say you know we're really happy bedding down we don't care what other people believe we're okay the faith in our heads is 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 hygienic it doesn't matter how decayed the church around us is so there will be two strategies but i think stephen noel made a very good case for saying that the, that the gafcon case in the jerusalem declaration the one that says there must come a parting of the ways at some point over both core doctrine but core culture too this is michael nazi ali's point lex lex orandi lex credendi what you pray uh, is what you believe and you don't have to change core doctrine to have discovered that christian culture has been subverted and perverted uh, and, and at some point people need to to make a choice in the church because you 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 cannot in my opinion remain flourishing in a, in a church that's been perverted by a liberal progressive establishment so but, who you lie down with in the palace bedroom the the, the bishop's bedroom uh if you want to use that is what you believe 
Kevin, I I haven't followed you. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, We were just talking about bishops and same-sex relationships. If you are lying in a same-sex relationship, uh, sleeping in a same-sex relationship, that's exactly what you believe. Yes. Okay, right. Sorry. But the the difficulty is, Gavin, that those who are taking within the conservative movement, within the Church of England, those who are taking the opposite tact can point to examples like me of flourishing. Um, my parish is flourishing. I have no, I have uh, uh, a hermetically sealed world that uh, is doing very fine, thank you. And I basically have nothing to do with the national church or the diocese. But hang uh, on. I get the bishop every two years. That and well, Episcopal Church is much looser, and that we are basically de facto Congregationalists, which a bishop who shows up to confirm, and uh, every two years. But I can't be forced out by the bishop unless I do something that the sheriff gets involved with. Well, um, I understand. And so if you are somebody like Great St. Helens, you, you can say, look, it can get so bad. Look at the United States. But there's still people like George Conger and several dozen other churches and clergy like that who are just fine, thank you very much. Why, why shouldn't we aspire for that? I think the answer, again, is as, as a Congregationalist, you're absolutely right. As an Episcopalian, an Anglican, a Western Reformed Catholic, you're absolutely wrong because you derive your authority to practice from your bishop. And you can't derive good sacramental authority from a corrupt bishop. It's a contradiction in terms. So it depends, George. You're absolutely right. Are you a Congregationalist masquerading and, 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 and sitting on the Anglican bus? Or are you a Western Catholic who's always Reformed? Uh, and who understands Episcopalianism. Uh, I, I completely agree with you that, that given what Anglicanism is, the view that you've espoused is, is a proper one. Um, I guess it depends on one's ecclesiology. We're, we're back to, you know, what does the church mean? What does holiness mean? As, as you define these terms, so the argument goes one way or the other. But 40 minutes, Let's take Sydney Anglicanism, which is this viewpoint on steroids. Indeed. Um, And it's been been very theologically hammered out by some very smart people at Moore College over the last 30, 40 years. Broughton Knox, uh, I'm I'm thinking of in particular, looking at the 39 articles, definition of the church is that local gathered congregation. It's not the bishop, it's not the diocese, it's not the national entity. So that worldview that you have in Sydney, that you have in uh, the conservative evangelical movement in the UK, that to some degree or another you have in the United States, but Sydney has very powerful bishops at the same time. So the, the issue is how do, you know, the call that the United States has been having and that the people in England are having is, let us have our own province. Let us have delegated fiscal oversight that works. Let us have this, let us have that. And the reason why it hasn't worked is because we're the one, we, we successful parishes are the ones that generate income. And if we're lost to some non-geographic entity, the local diocese will go under because they can't pay their bills. I understand, so, you, and you've given a very, a, a very worthwhile, pragmatic definition of it. But, the, the, but this reminds me of when I was walking out of General Synod with Bishop John Hind after losing a very serious vote, and he said something that seared my soul. And he said, "You know, Gavin, tonight the Anglican Church is the ecumenical experiment that just failed. It's not a church anymore." And the problem is, George, it, given the what you've just described, so the the Sydney version of this, or uh, versus the Stephen Knoll version of this, how do you do church when you have such different understandings 
of of ecclesiology of episcopacy of holiness at what point does a church stop becoming a church one of the problem one of the reasons why people are becoming catholics at one end or pentecostals at the other is that for for people who want a coherent theology of who we are and what what the what what the ecclesia is um this this pragmatism of different factions defining themselves in different ways is 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 um under persuasive and that's why people leave for more coherent communions but i want to sort of take this in a direction that we've discussed before but this is the nub of the matter part of the problem of of gafcon uk has been that it's only envisioned a, a form of episcopacy that would appeal to sydney would appeal to me it yeah. would appeal where uh, a bishop is an overseer and his sacramental or quasi uh yeah, he's a good historical manager. role is is second is, i'm not saying it doesn't exist, but it's second level mm. and what has been done and the reason why it's what why england has not come together behind an acna with is that it has only allowed one form to flourish while the acna has been successful because it goes from todd hunter to uh i'll say keith ackerman or or mm. uh mm. or jack eicher it mm. goes from you know gavin gavin and jack eicher are as one theologically mm. uh in other words in other words within the acna movement yes you have your divisions over women and some other issues women clergy but it, it's a broad enough foundation to allow everybody to flourish within their own particular system the mistake that gafcon uk made is basically saying it's only got to be this one way well, it's interesting because the acna does have mutual flourishing okay the, you know the diocese that uh believe one thing in women's ordinations and the diocese that believe it another uh both dioceses are, are flourishing so yeah. Well, and, and 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 I think the whole virtue of, if you like, the Catholic or the sacramental mm -hmm. inheritance of Anglicanism, which Cranmer kept together as an act of genius, mm -hmm. is that if you keep it together, then it works. But if you if you lose either, I mean, if you lose the vibrancy uh, and and the um, responsibility of congregationalism, which you have to have. Otherwise, you know, you the, you know, you you cannot just have a a kind of pure sacramental, authentic, apostolic idea of a church. You have to have vibrant bodies of Christ on the ground. But I think the the virtue of Anglicanism is that you have both. If you lose either, then you have a real problem, and that's that's my complaint. But in in a practical, let, let's take this on a practical level. Because sometimes people say we are a little air, too airy fairy. We sedate what the problem is, we, but we don't offer ways forward in the solutions. Um, the solution that I think that would work in the UK, that would work within that remnant within the Episcopal Church, is the College of Bishops approach. A collegial body uh, that allows uh, this sort of sense of mutual flourishing. That, you know, as I say, I mean, I have a decent bishop, he's a decent fellow, but he has no relationship to any person in my parish. The idea that the bishop has some sort of uh, uh, charism is completely foreign to the experience, not to the theology, but to the experience of the average churchgoer. For the clergy, that's very different because, in essence, he's your boss, but you have an absentee boss who doesn't show up for two years, who doesn't say anything, and sends the occasional letter asking for more money. 
if you had a true episcopacy where you had a father in God who ne may not necessarily be within driving distance, then you could have this flourishing that Gavin describes. But the old geographic system uh, is shown to be a failure by its, uh, by its and, existence. And, and I, I agree completely, George. And this isn't just a matter of, 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 of sort of ecclesial taste. One of the reasons that people like me come to this is because we've read Irenaeus, Irenaeus of Lyon, we've read Polycarp, we look at the first generation sub-apostolic church and we say, oh, okay, that's what Jesus meant. That's what he taught his apostles to do. That's how the church gets vigorous and converts the world. That's how you hold the whole thing together. Let's do that. And it's precisely the, the influence and the excitement of the early patristic church that gives, I think, the inspiration that ought to inform proper Anglicanism and, and proper, well, the whole, the whole church, the church of East and West. So this isn't about highfalutin theological taste. This is about how you do church, how Jesus told the apostles and how the apostles taught their successors to do the church that worked well. So we've just had 44 Minute Friday. We have a wonderful, patient, loving audience who will not be offended by sitting down and listening to some really good theological discussions of the Episcopacy at the end part of our show. Please keep Bishop Love in your prayers. Keep the Diocese of South Carolina in your prayers. Keep Anglican Unscripted in your prayers. It's a fun show to do. We had a couple extra interviews this week that were uh, certainly fun, and we were able to schedule. I'm Kevin Coulson. I'm George Conger. I'm Gavin Ashenden. You've been listening to episode 537 of the Holy Catholic One and Apostolic Church that Anglicanism Unscripted represents. Amen.